must understand that every life must end. As we sit alone, I know someday we must go home. Yeah, I'm a lucky man to count on both hands the ones I love. Some folks they got one, yeah, others they got none. Stay with me. Let's just breathe. Practice on my sins, never gonna let me win. Under everything, just another human in Yeah, I don't want to hurt There's so much in this world to make me believe Stay with me You're all I see Did I say that I need you? Oh, did I say that I want you? Oh, if I didn't, I'm a no one knows this more than me As I come clean I wonder every day As I look upon your face on Everything you gave And nothing you would take on Nothing you would take Everything you gave Did I say that I need you? Oh, did I say that I want you? Oh, if I didn't, I'm a fool, you see. No one knows this more than me. Is I come clean That's for you, Huff. Thank you for everything you gave. Hello, everybody. In the middle, in the end, in the beginning, what stage are we of this pandemic? I hope it's closer to the end. Anyhow, this is Schmitty, and you're listening to Talking Schmidt. Life is insane, and 2020 has taken the insanity levels to 11. Fortunate and heartbroken is possible feeling both high and low at the same time. This week's episode is 
outside my comfort area, really, but it was truly an honor to talk to Jeff Ament for two hours about both my loves, skateboarding and music. Jeff comes from the epitome of a small town in Big Sandy, Montana, where the population is roughly 600 people. He moved west and began his rock and roll journey with stops along the way in Green River and Mother Love Bone before finally arriving at the Pearl Jam Pinnacle. Jeff was there from day one as a founding father of Pearl Jam and tells many epic moments, including the initial tour under the name Mookie Blaylock. It just so happened that when we were making tapes to give them to our manager or to give them to whoever, we would just grab a card. The one that our manager ended up with had Mookie Blaylock in it. I was in his office one day and he's like, hey, Allison Chains wants to take you guys on tour, but... Um, you know, you need a name. And we're just like, ah, we don't have a name. And they go, well, we got to have a name like in half an hour. And then all of a sudden one of us looked and saw the basketball card and we're like, well, how about Mookie Blaylock? And I was like, well, yeah, that's not, that's kind of a cool sounding name. So we did a whole tour with Allison Shane's as Mookie Blaylock. Jeff has also been a skateboarder most of his life, building and skating parks with the Montana pool service. Skateboarding has taken some heavy hits lately and none more heavy than this past week losing Keith Huffnagel. Legend, obviously. Nice guy, understatement. Influential, as heavy as they come. Taken too soon, 150%. Fuck cancer. I don't think I'm saying anything new here, but I do have to acknowledge the pain. Apparently, it can be helpful to acknowledge it and not hide from it and realize that you're not alone. I know I'm not alone. Keith touched so many, and I'm pretty sure most of you are struggling. In fact, I asked my dentist the other day as he strapped on my nitrous, do you think anyone out there is saying, wow, 2020 has to be one of the best years of my life? Kind of doubt it. Count your blessings. And if you have good friends, love them while they're here. I hope you enjoy this one. It was really an honor for me. I'm going to pass it over to our guest. But before I do so, here's Tim McKenney with a personal tribute to Huff. Not a first impressions, but an everlasting impressions to the king of pop. And I'm going to keep it together. But uh, I was having a great day yesterday. Until I heard about the loss of Huff. And I just want to thank him for showing me the real New York. That was from Soho to Midtown to Uptown. Holding on to Ben Liversedge's car, skating his spots. It started uh, Soho, that area. And, and just skating around. Skating his, what he just talked about in the Jankum. Those banks, all those little plazas with banks. He took us through all that shit. And I was going over stuff I probably should have. I went over this crazy hip, over this guy. I think I tail slid. And he looked at me and goes, you didn't even know what was on the other side of that. As if it could have easily been a fucking three-story drop. And it was like almost like he was checking me. Watch what you're doing around New York, kid. I just want to thank you, Gio, uh, Ben, and the rest of your crew for showing me the true New York. Because if it wasn't for you guys, I would have just been stuck in the hotel and maybe skating Brooklyn Banks. Thank you, Huff. This is Jeff Ament. 
from Montana Pool Service, and you're listening to Talking Schmidt. It's cool, like tonight is the night. Here we go again. Just give it the old cars car, isn't it? All big dogs in. Schmitty. 96 times, Schmitty. Thanks, Schmitty. We on? Schmitty. Talking Schmidt. That's why I'm going to the hospital, bitch. I just <laughs> shit my pants. Your Rolodex is fucking deep. It's about the one, the one, the one. Who is this guy thinks he's tough shit? What's up? We're tastemakers. Come on, Schmitty, what the fuck? Let's hear it for Greg Smith. Okay, fuck, here we go, kids. I'm sitting here with skateboarder and bass player of a little band called Pearl Jam. Please welcome to the show, Jeff Amen. How's it going, hey. Jeff? How you doing? It's uh, hanging on by the seat of our pants, like everybody west of Mississippi right now. <laughs> yeah, do we want rain? Is rain gonna I think help? so, yeah, yeah, I think so, like... You know, we got we got a little bit of rain, and then east of here got snow, and then Colorado got snow last week, and I think it squashed all the all those fires, or at least at least put them back quite a ways. So, okay, I never am praying for rain or snow, but I am right now. <laughs> yeah, hey, you guys got some smoke in Montana, huh? Yeah, like t- two days ago. Well, maybe four days ago, um, we got a little bit of smoke, and then two days ago, it really started rolling in. And this morning, when we woke up, it's you can't like I can't see the mountain across the way or anything. So um, I, th- I think we're around two hundred uh, smoke index. <laughs> everybody's everybody's uh, educated on the smoke index now. Yeah. So <laughs> once you get to two hundred, stay indoors, and then yeah. if it gets too high, it's gonna come after you indoors. So. And, you, yeah. and San Francisco has some of the most insane photos I've ever seen. Like I had friends sending me pictures and I was like, that's not real. Like I've never seen anything. I've never seen this guy quite that red. Yeah, they got like orange uh, guys, but. they got Apocalypse Now, Blade Runner, and then San Francisco 2020. It's right, like, right, you can't right. tell the it's difference. Own, but those pictures of the bridge and stuff, it does look like a movie set. Yeah, it's, crazy. It's, it's insane. It's sort of one of those times where it's just like, okay, bring it on. Let's get this over with. Yeah, I don't want to jinx it, but I keep waiting for the earthquake. I'm just like, okay, once the earthquake hits, then we just turn, then the pendulum goes back. (laughs) Right, 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 right. It's fucked. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I appreciate you uh, meeting up for this. It means a lot. I'm stoked. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, Farmer says good things. Yeah, we've got a lot of mutual friends. Bryce is a really good friend of mine, too. Uh, and Bryce so, is the best, man. Yeah, it's cool. They always tell me stories. Actually, I've been to Montana one time, and it was a long time ago, and we didn't get to your zone, but it was right when, like, uh, Dylan was almost done. So yeah. it was, I think, 2010, maybe. And, yeah. uh, fuck, I just want to go back. I, was so, I mean, yeah. I think there's two or three times as many parks now as them, but... Yeah, they just kept. They were popping out good ones. Yeah, I think I think since then we've probably built at least two a year. So there's you know there's thirty plus parks here right now. So fuck, that's amazing. And, and still filling in. You know, it's cool. Like we've we uh, Superior was supposed to build a park, which is west of here, um, and uh, they decided they wanted to go after some more grant money. So we got this little town called Shelby, which is like perfectly between. Browning, uh, the Blackfeet Res, and um, Haver, Montana. There, there's always this three and a half hour stretch where we're like, God, if we get something, 
in here that would really so that's that's happening so that's super exciting so oh dude fuck yeah okay so you're in montana you were born and you were born and raised out there right yeah um i grew up um in a little town northern montana called big sandy um I think it's about 550 people now. It was about 800 when I was growing up. <clears throat> um, quite a ways, you know, probably closer to Canada than any city. We were about 40, 50 miles from Canada. So, oh, was there a school in town? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had. Uh, I mean, it's 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 you pretty have amazing. All still, in one class. <laughs> well, there's two buildings. There's like the grade school and then the high school, junior high are all together. Um, and when I was in school, there was about 25 kids in a class. So it was, it was kind of perfect, you know, like, I mean, I think that's this class size, even if you go, if you're in a school of 4,000 kids or, or whatever, you know, but right. um, yeah, they, they're struggling. The, I mean, these days, sometimes the classes are five or seven or 10, you know, so it's, there's a hospital there. There's a little weekly newspaper. There's uh, I mean, it's, there's a bank, you know, it's like there's stuff there that probably has no business being there, but, um, you know, locals support it and, you know, everybody's trying to keep the town alive. So huh. that's cool. Yeah. Do you, uh, consider, have you lived there like your mostly your whole life, even when you were in Seattle, did you have a place there or did you leave it for a while? No, I, uh, man, I mean, when I was 18, I couldn't, I couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, we were, we were in a, we were in a lower class family and my dad always had like five or six jobs and we had a little farm in the edge of town and, and, uh, but we traveled every year. Like <clears throat> my dad, um, converted an old school bus. Um, he worked uh, part-time at a, a welding shop and he, he like completely pimped out this school bus and we took it all over the place. Every year we went to back to Minnesota where his family was in Oregon, where some of my mom's family was and uh, went to California a couple times. As soon as I saw California, <laughs> it was sort of, I was sort of done with small town Montana at that point. I was like, okay, like I, I went to the beach in Santa Cruz with my cousins and I was like, what is this? Like girls dress like this and like just, just, you know, a dozen kids riding by on skateboards and cool cruiser bikes and, so, you know, it's it, my dad's, uh, you know, just getting us out to travel, like just opened my eyes to the, a little bit of the rest of the world. And, and it was kind of on at that point. Okay. What came first for you? Um, music? Like, did you pick up an instrument or a skateboard first? Well, I, I took, uh, my mom was a piano player. So I took piano lessons, I think, from like first to seventh grade. Um, and then, you know, just growing up in a small town, I did everything. I played all the sports. I was in band. I was in choir. Just because you're, you know, there's nothing else going on. And what do you, you know, there's a bowling alley with one pinball machine. That was like our, that was our excitement. <clears throat> so I was always kind of involved with music. But then when I got more serious playing sports in high school, some of the music stuff went by the wayside. And then funny thing is I went to college uh, thinking I was, thinking I was going to play basketball there and about halfway through the season I decided it kind of wasn't my thing and there just happened to be a kid on my floor who uh, grew up in West Covina and hung out with the adolescents and that whole scene that hardcore scene <clears throat> and then within I don't know a month we were on Saturday nights we were putting on Ramones records and playing along with it and 
<clears throat> I'd never played a, a, a bass or a guitar before at that point. And uh, I think within two months we were playing a show, you know, we learned like six or seven covers and, uh, and then it was just on, you know, it was like always looking for a drummer, did a, made a recording that spring. Uh, all that stuff was just like fantastic to me, like making a recording and hearing your voice. And, you know, it's, it's like not as good as black flag, but it's in the spirit. So you're like, okay, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. And, right. And then a friend of mine moved to Seattle and, uh, they were opening up a club there and, and it just, I just gravitated out that way. And that was, out of college. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I went to college for two years. Um, really only went to college for about a year and a third. <laughs> um, second year I was like, I knew I was going to Seattle and I was an art student and I, I had saved my money for years um, to go to school and took loans out and it wasn't as great as I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be like, you know, I thought some version of Basquiat or Warhol was going to be teaching classes. And, and, and some of the professors were fantastic artists, but really bad teachers. And so it just wasn't, the value wasn't there for me being a poor kid and mm. sinking thousands of dollars into college. It just seemed like I wasn't getting what I deserved. So, What was the scene like when you first arrived into Seattle? Well, the first, well, I, I'd gone to a show there, uh, I think in 1982, when I was still in college, I went and saw The Clash open up for The Who Damn. at The Kingdom. Um, and The Clash were like, it was a little bit disappointing. And I was like not into The Who at all at that point. And The Who were amazing. And I thought, wow, what's going on? Like, And I think, it was, I think it was just, you know, looking back, I think it was just that The Who were comfortable playing in front of 60,000 people in this horrible sounding building. Mm. I think the clash came out where this like, Oh my God, this is like, so not what we want to be doing right now. Um, but then the next night we went and saw X at a place called the Showbox, And, um, that was like the, well, the, yeah, that was the first, um, that was my freshman year of college. So that was sort of the first real hardcore show that I'd seen, um, until that upcoming summer when I went to California and saw some shows, but, um, uh, you know, as soon as you get a taste for that energy and you just like, you realize that there's people out there that, you know, want to, you know, be physical and uh, have have that energy and like loud music and like to skate, you know, almost everybody in the scene when I moved to Seattle skateboarded. I mean, it was crazy to go to a show and I mean, half the kids at the show were carrying skateboards. Um <clears throat> And there was a couple little clubs, like a place called the Gray Door that had a quarter pipe, um, you know, out on the other end of the floor uh, from the stage. And so, you know, when Tales of Terror came to town or GFA or whatever, like everybody's, you know, cranking on this four foot wide quarter pipe and having a blast. And it just seemed like that was a life for me at that point. Sick. Who were were those some of your favorites that would come through at that time was like GFA and adolescence tales of terror who who are some of the ones that you were psyched to see well i was i was deep i was pretty deep into it um when i was in montana i wrote a scene report for maximum rock and roll and so i was like trading tapes and like um okay. I, I you know i was like buying every record that i could afford to get and um the first i remember the first week that i got to seattle um 
Channel 3 played, Really Red played, and then there was a Bay Area band called Whipping Boy, who were a fantastic live band. Um, I was in Seattle and um, it actually got to the point to where I couldn't I couldn't afford to go to every show so I went to the owner of the club and said hey man can I sweep up or clean or and so he he was this guy Hugo was this French dude who I think he was really trying to open like a commune club um, but it ended up being like you know Seattle's version of like um, you know crass and kind of that whole English scene um, and he was like, so he was just so open to whatever. <clears throat> and so I just showed up at every show and if I couldn't afford to pay, I would like sweep the floors at the end of the night or I would, he got me playing records um, on off nights and he would, you know, give me 10 bucks or, or you know, something for coming yeah. to play music. And that, that ended up being how I met, like, you know, that's how I met Mark Arm and that's how I met Alex, who was a uh, drummer in Green River and, uh, just because those guys were coming out every night and we were talking music and um, hmm. 
Yeah. It's like that was that stuff was not happening in Montana. So um, yeah, <laughs> felt good. It felt good to be there. So did you um, take the guys from uh, West Covina? Did you start the uh, your first band with them and, and go to Seattle, or how did? What was your first band? Yeah, my first band was called Deranged Diction. And uh, it was this guy, John Donahue, um, who was from West Covina. Um, maybe the first month of school, we were, there were some brick banks uh, between the library and the student hall of the university um, that we used to skate. <clears throat> and there were there's two opposing banks. One was about four feet tall, and one was about seven or eight feet tall. And uh, we were over there one day, and this kid shows up and starts skating, and we start talking. And the first thing he said was like, "Do you play music?" And we're like, "Well, yeah, we do." <laughs> and he goes, oh, "I have a Les Paul and a I can't remember what amp he had." And he, and so then we start talking music, and his favorite bands were. I remember he was really into Gang of Four. And so um, that ended up being my friend Bruce Fairweather, who I'm still really good friends with. <clears throat> and then we, you know, we probably went through like six or seven drummers, um, of which uh, uh, this guy Sergio Avina was our drummer the last, the whole yet last year that we were um, a band there. <clears throat> and he ended up, he ended up moving to Seattle with me. He, um, he, uh, I went and picked him up at his mom's in Frenchtown and he didn't have any money. And his mom made him like these two giant bags of fried chicken. It must have been like four chickens or something. <laughs> and uh, I think he might have, I think we both might have eaten almost all of it on the way to Seattle, which is like only like a nine hour drive or something. Damn. But we we stayed at my friend Randy's house and it was, uh, you know, we were both sleeping in this little closet. And then Sergio ended up finding some people that he ended up living with and and then it was just like the, you know, getting a job and trying to get ahead of it and trying to get your, you know, it took me a couple months to get my own apartment and all of that. But um, forever grateful to Randy Peprock, who was the guy that said, like, they're opening this club. You got to move out here. You can stay with me. I mean, all that stuff, you know, that's not possible without having one person who can offer it. So, right. Those, uh, those like choose your own adventures that you made the right choice are like so key. Right. Yeah. And, and, and just being young enough to, you know, you weren't afraid of it failing or any of that. You know, it's right. I mean, I think about it now and it just seems insane that I did what I did. And <clears throat> I think by the time I landed out there, I had 40 bucks and it was just, you know, you just went to the store and bought like 20 pot pies and that lasted you for three weeks yeah. and, <laughs> yeah we'd buy those microwave burritos they were like 99 cents frozen and you just yeah boom 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 um yeah. so did going out and and being a part of the club did that motivate you to like i want to get out there and, and play like did you meet some people in that process that helped kind of get you to be able to play some shows and get the band out there yeah, we, you know, um, I, since I got to be friendly with Hugo, the, the 
guy that owned the metropolis uh, or ran the metropolis um you know like i think once everybody got out to seattle um we put an ad in the newspaper and this guy rod we didn't have a singer so this guy rod moody uh answered the thing you know the first guy and he was like super talented and had written songs and uh i think within a couple of weeks uh i told Hugo, I said, Hey, if you need an opening band, he goes, ah, we need an opening band next week for this band from Texas called Butthole Circus. <laughs> I didn't know anything about them. Um, cause it was the first, their first time around the country. Yeah. And, um, uh, so we, I think that was, that was the second show we played. I think we played another show that was like a benefit for, uh, uh, the Vancouver five or something. Um, and then, and then we were just sort of in, you know, then we, you know, we opened up for Husker Du and we opened up for DLA and a bunch of, you know, a bunch of bands, you know, kind mm-hmm. of, um, <clears throat> and, you know, the bands that came through, you know, like Husker Du were like nicest guys ever. Like the, the guy that promoted that show decided he wasn't going to pay us and they gave the guy a hard time and ended up giving us 20 bucks and Grant gave me a joint and you know, I didn't smoke weed, <laughs> but it was like, I'm crap who's going to give me a jelly, you know? So, um, <laughs> all those, all those experiences were just so amazing, you know, seeing bad brains and, you know, just so many amazing shows that at that time, um, it, it really was like the, you know, in some ways the best time of my life. Cause I was going to shows, you know, at least twice a week or three times a week and I had a killer job at a restaurant called Raison Debt that, everybody who worked there was a kind of the center of the gay art community in Seattle. And everybody was like into cool stuff. Everybody was into cool art, cool theater. You know, I had guys taking me to go see, uh, Ornette Coleman and King Crimson and stuff I would never would see, Mm -hmm. um, because they wanted to turn me on to something. And so, um, you know, it was just a, you know, I, like I said, I can't, I grew up in a wheat farm, small town in Montana and all of a sudden I'm like in the center of this just this creek such a cultural um melting pot of just really interesting characters and uh a lot of those folks that I'm I'm still in touch with and they're still doing cool art and I I totally lucked out that I got thrown into that world um because it might my life would be different without the metropolis and the race on dead might be a farmer. This is Tony Farmer, and you are listening to Talkin' Schmidt. And now, another first impression with Tony Douglas Farmer. It all centers around a night at Madison Square Garden in 2010. Just a, a mad, mad night backstage, and John McEnroe and Michael Moore and the Olsen twins and Steve Olsen, Jocko and Bud and Rick, the, that shit quarterback from the Jets. It, it, a whole spinal tap freak out at the end because we we stayed so fucking long we couldn't figure out how to get out of the arena. It was the first time I'd ever seen Pearl Jam. So my first impression of Jeff is I should have seen Pearl Jam a long fucking time ago. I was just fucking blown away. The gig was incredible. I, I, I'm, I may be going out on a limb here, but... I definitely came away from that night feeling like, you know, there's, we, we, we got the, the great American rock and roll band question. Who is the great American rock and roll band? Well, they're, they may not be the answer, but they're in the, 
they're in the running. But as for Jeff, just the sweetest fucking cat, down to earth, and I love the dude. Wow. And were you skateboarding yet at this time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, growing up in Montana, like, we took a trip to California maybe 76, and um, my cousin Gary Keppers, who lived in San Leandro, <clears throat> he had made, a like, a stringer laminate board um, in his shop class, and he had California Psalms or Road Rider 4s on it, and we just ended up that's what we did the whole time that I was there is we just went out in the street. There was brand new asphalt in front of their house. Um, it was kind of new suburbs. And uh, I, I'd ridden a skateboard before, but it only clay wheels. And so uh, to get on Road Rider 4s, it was like, and, and these trucks that turned. Um, and then when I left, I, I think I've told this story before, but when I, when I left, he gave me a skateboarder magazine, um, which I'd never seen before. And it's a 20-hour drive back to Montana. And um, by the time I got back to Montana, I knew every square inch of that magazine. And I was already had already planned what I was going to order. And, um, you know, like they showed slalom. I was like, oh, yeah, we can. The train depot has a big pad. I can do slalom over there. Right. And then by the end of the summer, there was a couple of ads um, or a couple of articles of skateboarder of, of like, really crappy ramps there were pictures of these you know they weren't even doing like true radiuses at that point um and uh my dad was really into showing me how to build a ramp and really into showing me how to cut out my own skateboard and he didn't really have that much interest in sports um but teaching me how to build something was like uh was pretty important and something that he had a lot of energy for so I, you know, for the next five years until I graduated, uh, I was building bigger and bigger and bigger ramps every year. And I had a bunch of little side jobs where I was like, you know, saving my money. I was like, okay, they're putting masonite on ramps. I'm going to save up and buy, you know, masonite or the transitions were getting bigger. They added flat bottom or just all the different, you know, things that were changing. And, um, I was just keeping up with the magazines, you know, whatever I saw in the magazines. Um, and then gradually there were a couple contests in the state, like by 78 <clears throat> state fair had a, and I met kids. Then I started to meet kids from, from around the state. And, uh, and then every year you travel a little bit, you get in the car with a couple people and drive 300 miles to skate somebody's crappy low quarter pipe. <laughs> you know? yeah. so, was there anybody from Montana in that era that came out and ended up like getting some uh, skateboarding? Well, there, there was a, there was this kid, Mike Moraski, who always beat me. Um, he ended up skating in a couple of the Hester series contests. Um, okay. And um, <clears throat> I think 79, we had, there was a contest in Helen and I, and I was getting my game together. Like I had pogo rock and rolls and I was kind of blasting frontside airs. And I was like, I'm going to get him. And he, I didn't know it because he lived in Bozeman, which was 250 miles away. And, you know, it's like, I'm not talking to him during the year, but he, I think in May or whatever it was that year, they went to Boulder and he skated in the Hester series and ended up getting sponsored by Gullwing and I don't know who else. I think uh, 
I think uh, Tom Inouye g- gave him some caster boards and some wheels. <clears throat> but he came back to the helmet contest and he was doing like backside ollies and I think he's doing inverts and, you know, he was, he stayed ahead of us. And, uh, and then he ended up, he moved to Seattle and we had a little, we had a little interaction in Seattle and then he moved to San Francisco and started a band called Steel Pole Bathtub who were on Alternative Tentacles. now uh at valve uh who you know they do you know super like the top end video games like he's oh, okay he's creating music for like incredible music and award-winning music for i don't know anything about video games he explains this stuff to me and yeah it's huge and you know he, it's a great job and he gets to <clears throat> you bring in like a death metal drummer with you know, African players and, you know, and whatever he dreams up in his head that he thinks would be the soundtrack for these things, he ends up, um, you know, bring that to life. But, uh, so yeah, he was the guy, Mike Moraski was the guy that if he would have moved to California, he could have, he could have probably, and skateboarding died right at that time, right when he was peaking. Start, the parks are yeah. disappearing and everything. Yeah. Yeah. 1980 or <clears throat> 1981, it was, it was, you know, there's, two or three skate parks left. I think Del Mar and Upland mm-hmm. and a couple others. But. Right. And so was it mid eighties or something when you were in Green River? Yeah, I moved to Seattle in 83 and then Green River started into uh, 84, I guess, probably.
it was like perfect timing. He came up and he was like, Hey, do you want to join our band? And he was in a band called Mr. Epp that the last version of Mr. Epp was with Steve Turner. And it's sort of, um, Mr. Epp was a cool band. They were, you know, they were, they were like, they kind of had a flipper thing, hmm. but Mark and Steve were playing guitar, but it almost seemed like they were taking the piss out of like, rock star guys that could play guitar but they couldn't play guitar so it was like it was a really like i couldn't quite figure it out like i i mean growing up in montana i i had no real concept of sarcasm uh. um and so i was like really super confused by what they were trying to do it was like okay, it looks cool but it kind of doesn't sound that cool <laughs> i mean yeah, i walk back to the back of the room turn on the cassette player and you too for yourself can hear Mr. Elk and the Calculations, perhaps the world's worst rock and roll band. I'm now walking back towards the tape recorder, and here is Mr. Elk. So they came up and they were like, hey, you want to play bass with this? And uh, the guy that was going to play drums was this guy, Alex, who I got to be friendly with, too. Um, and uh, he was in a he was in a band called Spooly Numa that was kind of kind of the first of the kind of metal -y, um hardcore bands. Like it, it was uh, maybe like Suicidal Tendencies a little bit or, you know, something in that realm. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it, it just coincided perfectly with uh, guys in my band not showing up for practice. And, and you know, I, I was taking a bus like 45 minutes or an hour across town and guys weren't showing up. And right in the middle of that, they were like, hey, you want to come play with us? And I was like, yeah, I'll go check it out. And and then it's weird. You know, it's weird that time of your life, you know, when you think about like you can't even think of why you broke up with a girlfriend or why you stop being friends with people like people just sort of fall off and i mean our band broke up but there was really no conversation about it <laughs> guys huh. just stopped showing for practice and so then i stopped initiating any of it and i stopped getting shows and then um all of a sudden i was in this other band and within you know a couple of weeks we were opening up for the dead kennedys and 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 recording you know we were i mean we were in this recording studio within probably three weeks of being a band. So wow. it was cool. It was, it was cool to be in a band with guys that were, you know, sort of hyped to do all the stuff you want to do, make records and play yeah. shows and maybe even tour a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. 
What what can you say about Mark Arm? Is he a pretty sarcastic guy? Like oh, he man. likes to take yeah. the piss out of things, right? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Like I mean, now I can completely, I totally appreciated it um, <laughs> at the time. Um, and, and you know, when he was at his best, or you know, at the time, sometimes I thought it was his worst. Um, <laughs> it was when we were playing the really big shows, like Dead Kennedys or Black Flag. There's like 1,200 kids, and half the kids have never been to a punk show. That you know, they're like. I don't know where these kids were showing up from, but those were the shows where he really, <laughs> I mean, you know, his stuff was, you know, I, I started to catch on to what he was doing by that point, but the crowd didn't know. And the, and the few kids in the crowd that didn't know <clears throat> wanted to kick our ass. Um, and, uh, and then there, you know, there was, I mean, it's, it's, it's it's a good it's worthy of a chapter in a book you know the time that we spent in green river um, um just the uh the stuff that he pulled you know he <clears throat> there was one show i think it was opening up for agent orange it was one show where he um we played half the show and then all of a sudden he reached into his pants and he just starts pulling out like sardines and starts throwing them to the crowd and i remember thinking like how long did he have the sardines in his <laughs> pants for? Like, that's a, that's a high concept uh, comedy act. Um, but, and I think some sardines got in the PA and then that, you know, that promoter wasn't going to let us play shows. So I think the end of Green River, I don't even know if we could barely play a show in Seattle. Um, we were <clears throat> playing a lot of shows at Satyricon in Portland and going to Vancouver and Victoria a bunch, but, um, um, but, we made great records and we went to the East coast and we went to California a couple of times. And, you know, we were, there was a, there was a sweet spot where we were sort of open to each other's uh, influences. And, uh, and I think it worked, you know, I think the middle record drives a bone, you know, I think that was like sort of the sweet spot where it was like, okay, you can do like Stooges meets, Aerosmith meets birthday party meets Iron Maiden. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it just, I think it got, it just, it's, it, we started to get, it started to get polarized. You know, it's like, it's like any relationship at that time too. Everybody's trying to figure out their identity and what they stand for and whatever. So does Green River, mm-hmm. um, does it cross over with Mother Love Bone or does one end and the other one starts? Yeah, so we did a trip down to California, and it wasn't a great, wasn't a great trip. And um, I think by that point, like we, we'd started, we'd started getting offers for you know from uh, you know record labels like Enigma, and uh, we were, I was friends with a guy that um, worked at Island, and I was friends with a woman who worked at Slash. Um, and so, we, you know, we were sort of trying to like, you know, like at least I was trying to like, you know, get a record on a, you know, on a bigger label because I liked a lot of those bands that were on those labels. And, uh, um, I, you know, I, I and, and I think in some ways I was driven in a little different way. Like I didn't, I didn't have a safety net. I didn't, I was the only guy in the band that didn't have family in Seattle. So I was probably a teeny bit more desperate to like, I couldn't really afford to be in a band and, and work a really crappy job. Like I, 
you took time off to play shows and then you just be in this crazy hole for like four months, you know, cause you're making minimum wage and you know, you're trying to pay rent and trying to keep your phone going. And so I think there was a part of me that thought like, well, if we, you know, maybe some label would give us $30,000 and we could, <laughs> we could, you know, I could yeah. afford to pay my phone bill, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so Green River ended, Mud Honey went off in one way, and then Mother Love Bone started. Uh, Is that kind of the way. same time that uh, Monkey Wrench did a little something too? Yeah, Monkey Wrench might have been like maybe four years after that or something. In fact, Monkey Wrench might have been right around the time that Pearl Jam was getting going. Like it might have been like... 1990 or something like that and we loved <clears throat> anything that tim kerr was involved in chris gates and those guys we 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 loved the we love the big boys like yeah there was a trip there was a trip that uh green river did to california where <clears throat> our bus broke down and we were supposed to go to texas and play sh uh, a show with the big boys and we we're supposed to play a show with butthole surfers and, and that didn't happen that's that's sort of like one of the big regrets not getting to go to texas and witness whatever was going on there. I mean, the little bits of things that we heard and saw, um, it looked like the greatest music skateboard scene on the planet. Um, I, I remember, I think Thrasher Magazine had, a, had that picture of a, looked like it was like a 16 foot wide vert ramp. Maybe it was wider. Mm. And the big boys were playing in the middle of it. And, and it just looked, everybody who was dancing and stuff, it just looked looked a little bit like Seattle, you know, in terms of like the crowd, but they were having, you know, a punk rock show in the middle of a really cool looking skate ramp. Yeah. And, and the big boys music was like just the best, you know, it was like, they, they were really good. It was like the Minutemen, but it was like Texas style and almost more funk, almost more in the funk realm. And so, mm. and I always like, I loved the Minutemen live, but I didn't always like the records like at that time. And, um, and I, which I love their records now. Um, but the big boys were doing something that was, you know, I'm, I'm really bummed. I never got to see that band. Like that's a, that's a, that's a bummer. Yeah. I'm interviewing uh, Tim day after tomorrow, actually. Uh, I'm looking he's the, he's the greatest. Yeah. <laughs> Stoked. Yeah. I did uh Brian Brandon like a week ago and cool. uh, he was talking about, the thing that you guys all kind of have in common is like his first show, they opened up for Black Flag. I'm like, right. what the fuck? <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Right. It's like you say in like these early shows opening up for whoever, Husker Du or what adolescents and all these bands. It's like such a different time, I think. And such a like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you could go on forever about that. But it's really cool to just kind of see those like footsteps. And like, I mean, Green River looking back is a big influence on so many people uh that have gone whichever way but like there's that nucleus that you guys had and uh i'm kind of trying to figure out like nirvana bleach was already out but maybe that was it or no no like uh bleach came out like 88 or something so that was like um you know, Mudhoney had already made, uh, I mean, Green River, we'd done our three records and Mudhoney had already made their first couple of records, maybe our first record before Bleach came out. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember I remember hanging out at the Vogue and hearing, um, because 
we were good friends with Jonathan and Bruce uh, from Sub Pop. In fact, they they moved their offices to right above the coffee shop, the Raison d'Etre that I worked at. Um, and the Vogue was right across the street, um, which is where, you know, most of the action was happening kind of from 1987, 86 to <clears throat> 19, you know, 1990 or something like that. Um, but uh, I remember, I remember being at the Vogue and hearing this music and I was like, what is this? This is incredible. Cause it, it sounded sort of like Metallica meets the Beatles or something like I, you know, like, and then I, they played a couple weeks later and I went saw them and I thought they were terrible. I was like, ah, I don't, I don't see it. And I remember Jonathan Poneman was really super hyped on it. And I was just like, I don't, I don't really, it's to me, it sounded like at that time, it sounded like a kind of a bad version of Mud Honey, who I thought were amazing. And within a few months, Mud Honey was, you know, incredible, you know, and then a few months after that, Dave Grohl joined the band and that was, that was when I knew it was, it was real. I knew that, you know, what they were doing was clearly better than anything else that was happening um, when he joined the band. So Grohl really helped like push it into another level. Yeah. And Chad Channing was an amazing, like he was one of my favorite parts of the band when I saw him early on. Um, But there was, there was like the power that Dave played with, like it, and, and just how dynamic he was, like how quiet he would get. Um, it just played right into the way that Kurt was writing songs. Like it was that loud, quiet thing was such a big part of what they did. And, and Dave really made it loud. Like it, it was like, I, I, <clears throat> I don't know if I'd ever seen a drummer play like that up to that point, you know, like that heavy, you know, like you're where you're in a little club and it's like the cymbals are killing you. And like, it's, you know, it's, you know, propelling the music in a way that, you know, I mean, <clears throat> when you see great drummers, you, you start to understand that, but that, you know, for our little local scene to have a drummer and we had great, we had amazing drummers. I was in a band with this guy, Greg Gilmore, who was a fantastic drummer, Matt Cameron. I remember when Matt Cameron joined Soundgarden, it was just like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> you know, like, like Soundgarden, you know, took this, you know, almost took the same sort of step that Nirvana did at that time. Like, you could tell a song garden had something cool going on and they'd made a single and it was That was cool and whatever. But Matt had been playing in this band called skin yard. That was kind of an arty band that I didn't really like at that time, but I listened to that music now and I, I appreciate it. Um, but you know, Matt just, uh, he brought a level of uh, musical sophistication to that band that allowed them to, right in weird time signatures and not make it sound weird. And, um, you know, it gave, it gave Chris just the ultimate palette to write, you know, music that he ended up writing. So, um, yeah, Matt Cameron and Dave Grohl, but that's the two guys right there. So this is probably a little <clears throat> weird question, but like from my perspective, what happened was, cause I had seen Nirvana on the bleach tour and they played like a small little club. Right. And we were yeah. into like bands that, you know, like you say, we were into punk bands and then Nirvana came through and it, we didn't really call them a punk band, but they had that small identity or whatever. Yeah. We went to Santa Barbara, Isla Vista for a Halloween blowout party or whatever. And yeah. it's just, you know, the worst people kind of everywhere, but it's just beer right. and let's get fucked up. And Every motherfucker was playing Smells Like Teen Spirit. 
It was right. like right when it came out and we were yeah. like stoked because we just bought the album and we were like, what is going on? Yeah. Like all these normal people that yeah. would never be at the shows we're at have it and playing it. I'm just yeah. wondering, I'm sure you've probably heard this a million times, but what do you think happened? Was it just the right uh, place, right time? Like, it's so weird. Well, yeah, yeah, it's both things. It's the right place. And it was also like the worst thing that could have happened because it was so it was so out of nowhere and it got so big so fast. And I have a similar story. Like I was in when I was in college, U2, it just made war their third record and I got it and U2 was like there was only like 20 of us in this little town that were listening to U2 at the time because they'd only made two records and the third record came out and I probably had it for a couple of weeks and they were still like my little band and then I remember I was riding my bike past like frat row and and there were all these guys out front singing Sunday Bloody Sunday and I was just like fuck that I was just so I was so pissed yeah I, I was like that's fucking my music. That's not those, I fucking hated frat dudes. I mean, that was, yeah. it was why I quit playing basketball because that knuckleheaded right. jock thing that, I mean, I was playing sport. I played every sport in high school, but I didn't understand. I was also like a punk rocker and had a skate ramp in my yard. <laughs> and so nobody told me that you couldn't be both things. And I went to college and it was quickly evident that those guys were like, well, you can't hang out with those fags over there or, you know, I was like, what do you mean? Those are my friends. Like, yeah. I mean, I can't hang out with those guys. That guy's got pink hair, blah, 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 you know? And so I, I went, I went the other way. And then when I saw those guys like singing Sunday, bloody Sunday, I was just like, Oh my God. Like they, that my YouTube, like I didn't listen to YouTube anymore. Like I didn't listen to YouTube until I think Octune baby, you know, I didn't, I didn't listen to any of that, any of those records. Um, and it was because they got taken away from us and the same exact thing happened in Nirvana and then, and then happened to us where, you know, we made our first record and we're out like, you know, plowing around in a van and playing in front of 15 people in Providence and, you know, doing it exactly the way that we thought. And then we, I think we opened up for the Chili Peppers, but still we were playing 30 minutes and we were like the low man on the totem pole. And then Nirvana was like blew up, like their record came out a couple months after our record. And I remember every club that we went into that we'd be loading into, they were cranking that record. It's the same, same exact story that you're talking about. It's like, yeah. and, then, and then after like two weeks, you're like, I'm so fucking sick of this record. Like, oh yeah, at least that gonna song. Get, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and so, so then it was like, then it, then it really was, it was just on and we were just on this we were just on this magic carpet ride that was going too fast. And, you know, then all of a sudden every band in the world is asking us to go play shows with them and all your dream, you know, you've been in bass for 10 years, like, <laughs> you know, once a year you get the black flag gig or you get some bigger gig and that makes your year. And then it goes from that to like, you know, Keith Richards asking you to come out and play shows and Neil Young asking you to come out and play shows and you're just, you too asking, you, to come, you know, and you're going like, ah, like, and there was a point where we just, you know, I think 92, we, we played, we were probably touring for a year and a half straight. And when about 92 rolled around, we were just like, we're, we got to just stop. Like we had to stop for a little bit because we're, we're just, it's just like, this is, we're going to burn out and it's going to be all over. And, 
it's such a weird thing to describe. Um, I have such a hard time with it personally, but that inner feeling of being bummed on something, not because the thing that you're bummed on has changed, but because the audience has changed. Yeah. It's really difficult, right? Like it's like, I love the Ramones, but now they're too popular, so I can't like them anymore. And it's like, do you think that's kind of an adolescent thing or that's just like, I've I've never really been able to, I have those feelings and I can't figure them out. Like, I don't know if they're healthy or what, but like, it's it's well, interesting. Well, yeah, I think at that age too, like, I, I, I feel like, you know, I feel like we worked really hard to develop our identity. <laughs> And we had this small group of friends that it was our thing. And I think as soon as that thing got co-opted um, and, and it happened to us, you know, and that's, that's why I, even to this day, if somebody comes up and says like, yeah, I'm not really into your band. I'm like, totally cool. I get it. <laughs> like, you know, if I was 20 years old and my band came out when I was 20 years old and I was into, you know, more independent music, I would have hated us too. You know, like, uh even though we, you know, everybody in the band has, you know, came from that and came from that, you know, everything that we've done, like if you talk to any band that's toured with us, they will tell you that we treated them well and that we do things uh, like our crew, a lot of our crew we've had for 25, 30 years. And like, there's a, there's a real family, you know, it doesn't feel that different to me than the metropolis, that communal club, punk rock club, you know, when I first moved to Seattle at Hugo ran. And a lot of it was just from witnessing that stuff and going like, Oh, this is how you treat people. And this is how you don't treat people. And, um, so, but, but I, you know, I'm never offended when somebody says like, yeah, I kind of hate your band or whatever. Uh, I'm just like, yeah, cool. Let's talk about something else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. What's the uh, infatuation with Mookie Blaylock? Do you like the name? Like, what was the deal? How did the band almost get called Mookie Blaylock? Well, it was like it was like pure accident. When Pearl Jam was making our first record, um, we would go over. There was a there was a Safeway across the street from the studio, and we go over every day and get lunch. And we started doing this thing where we would buy a pack of basketball cards. Uh, with our lunch and it was like, we sort of had a contest, like whoever put together, you know, in their seven or 10 cards that you got, whoever could put together the best team would win. You know, it was like the cheap, like little card game or something that we played. Something? It was like, well, you know, you'd just be like, okay, I got 10 cards. I got, oh, I got like Magic Johnson, Isaiah Thomas. And like, I win, I have oh. like three all-stars and you got Greg Kite and, you know, a bunch of bench guys. Um, and it just so happened that when we were making tapes to give them to our manager or to give them to whoever, we would just grab a card and stick it. They fit perfectly in the cassette where the J card was. The one that our manager ended up with had Mookie Blaylock, Mookie Blaylock in it. And uh, I was in his office one day and he's like, hey, Allison Chains wants to take you guys on tour, but... Um, you know, you need a name. And we're just like, ah, we don't have a name. And they go, well, we got to have a name like in half an hour because the info is going out to the club owners who, you know, make the posters and run the advertisements or whatever. And so we were looking, we were looking around, we were just looking around. And I remember Ed and I were like writing just like 
cool names on a piece of paper. Um, Cause we hadn't even thought about it at that point. Like we were just completely focused on like uh, writing music at that time. And, uh, and then all of a sudden one of us looked and saw the basketball card and we're like, well, how about Mookie Blaylock? And I was like, well, yeah, that's not, that's kind of a cool sounding name. So we did a whole tour with Allison Shane's as Mookie Blaylock. Um, never intending to keep the name. <laughs> We thought it was a perfect uh, placeholder. <laughs> yeah. Um, until we could figure that out. Ah, oh, interesting. I never heard of that. So the card just fits right into the tape cassette. Yeah, perfectly. Yeah, perfectly. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We're going to take a little pause and we'll be right back after a few words from uh, some of our friends. Hey, it's Corey at Blue Plate, 3218 Mission Street. Come see us. Meatloaf, fried chicken, deviled eggs, Dollar Olympia beers. We're here every day of the week. We got a garden and we got smiles on our faces. Come let us make you happy. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The band getting together, like, your expectations have to be high, right? I mean, like, you guys had a full album almost within whatever like you guys played a show i think six days after the band got together is what i read or something yeah 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 we uh like you were which ready. again <laughs> it, yeah but it, 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 you know i think it was like ed was coming up for a week and it just sort of felt like if we're really gonna see if he's the guy then one of the things we have to do is play a show um and he'd already put in lyrics he'd already put lyrics to three of the songs so we worked up another five or six songs over the course of that week. And then uh, I think it was like the sixth day, like, I think the fifth day we went in the studio and, re- and did a de- did recorded demos to six or seven of those songs. And then we went and played a show and, uh, and then he got on a plane and went back to California and it was sort of like, is he, is he the guy? And like, you know, it was a couple of days of discussions about that. And, I mean, from my standpoint, it was like, like it was clear that he was like, he was a worker bee, like the, like we were, and that was what I wanted more than anything. I wanted a guy that was just gonna like live it, you know, and like be stoked to get in a van for two years and just like go everywhere that we possibly could, and um, and because I, I'd read somewhere, I think even when I was in Green River, I'd read somewhere that. And it might have even been some some somebody ridiculous, like somebody in like Steely Dan or some. But they said playing a show is like ten rehearsals. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, we need to go play a hundred shows because we need to be a thousand times better than we are right now. Um, and <clears throat> so that was, you know, it was clear to me, like you know, in that week that we hung out with Ed, that was that that he wanted to do the same thing. Like he was like. I'm ready to do the work. I'm ready to put posters up. I'm ready to make t-shirts. I'm ready to, you know, do the work. So. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, at that stage of your career, though, you've already been in some bands that are pretty well known, at least especially in Seattle, right? So playing at home the first couple of shows, there's probably a buzz about like, wait, there's this new band playing. There's a guy coming up to sing, (laughs) you know, like probably like the insiders know the scoop and they want to come. I mean, is there some animosity amongst people like uh, competitive wise where it's like, oh, let's see, like, what they got on us? Or is there more of a brotherhood? Well, I think when the I think when the scene was smaller, um, there was more of a brotherhood. And then I, th- I think, you know, I think when the thing really split was when Green River broke up and Mud Honey went one way and Mother Love Bone went the other way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I think that, I think that, I think the scene, which was probably only a couple hundred people at that time, it really did divide, you know, half, you know, or however many people went towards money and the rest of them went towards us. And, um, and and I think even like after Andy died, it probably, you know, there was probably some crossed arms. I I think I just closed my eyes for that whole show. And I think Ed probably did too. Um, But I, you know, I think it's like, he's the new guy and he's the guy that's going to try to replace Andy. And yeah, all of that but it was awesome too because um like the Soundgarden guys and the Alice in Chains guys and you know some of the people that we shared uh man- managers with um they were really super supportive and in particular the Soundgarden guys um, especially Chris was really really super supportive um of us at the beginning he was always wearing our t-shirts and um whatever and and was really uh a good friend to Ed, you know, that, that, that first couple of years. Um, and that's huge, you know, like, I mean, when we did shows with Soundgarden, you know, Chris would come out and introduce us and he would come out and sing part of the song with us. And, and there, there really was a brotherhood again with that, um, with that part of the scene. And, and yet, you know, Mud Honey and the sub pop, the sub pop scene was kind of out doing its other thing. And then Nirvana blew up and then that, they just went their way and we sort of went our way and, mm. and then eventually we, it all sort of came back together. In fact, when, when Kurt died, we were on tour with mud honey and there was like such good healing going on on that tour because stone and I really hadn't hung out with Mark or Steve since we broke up. So, um, oh. and, and I was really good friends with Mark. I mean, we lived together and it was a really like, you know, we, we were in the middle of that tour, like, you know, sort of making things right and, and getting along great and drinking beers after the show. And we went to the White House together and, oh, uh, you know, died. And, and then Kurt died in the middle of that. And um, and it was good. It was really good that we were all together at that point, because I think we, you know, I mean, I wasn't friends with Kurt and, uh, you know, it was more we shared a uh <clears throat> i mean we were brothers with nirvana whether we hung out or not because we were we were the two bands that got mentioned together for lack of a better example we were the rolling stones and the beatles you know or whatever of the seal of the seattle thing so we were we, you know we were paired up we were uh you know they we were pitted against one another you know there's a lot of uh <clears throat> journalists that you know tried to make something out of that that there was some 
uh, some animosity between us or whatever. And, and it, and it sort of worked for a while, but, um, but we still, we, you know, I, I knew Chris Novoselic forever. Um, he was, he was, uh, he hung out with the Melvins guys, uh, back in the early days. And so, um, you know, when Kurt passed away, it was, you know, we were super sad, you know, um, yeah. cause they were brothers. Right. Do you remember what city you were in? Uh, yeah, we were in, um, we were in DC. We were playing like, oh, no. <clears throat> we were playing George, George Washington university or something. Is that, is that in DC somewhere? Yeah, I think so. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the moments through where you remember, like, I remember exactly where I was when that happened too. like my boss yeah. came in and was like, dude, he was kind of like clowning. Did you hear like some shit? Yeah. And I was just like, no way. Yeah. yeah. No way. We knew he'd been having some troubles and we lost Andy, you know, a couple of years before that. So it wasn't, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you're not, you're not shocked, but you're still just totally so sad, you know, like totally for everybody involved. So, yeah, I mean, not to get carried away on a tangent of that, but, um, similar thing. Like I've had a few real important people in my life die in the last like five years, like, uh, you know, P-Stone, Hubbard, yeah. and then Jake Phelps, yeah. uh, and not even making the comparison to Cornell, Cobain, and Woods, but just in in a way, it was the same type of thing where it's like three dudes within like every two to three years, somebody big and important yeah. in your world is passing. Do you feel like, like I was saying it the other day and I was like, I don't know, but I might be getting jaded to it. Like each time someone dies, it's almost like you're so bummed, but you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I know you've dealt with loss too. So I just kind of wondering how you've kind of looked at it. Yeah. You know, it's, um, I was pretty good friends with Hubbard. I mean, Hubbard, uh, came out and built my bowl and, uh, yeah, I got to know P Stone pretty well. He uh, he came out with Rick and Buddy. Um, on the, we did a vote for change tour, so P Stone was on that thing. And then every time Annie Hero came through town, P Stone was with them. And oh yeah, again, like even you know, I saw Hubbard maybe two weeks before he passed, and like seeing things seemed a little bit off. So you know, you know that he's he went hard. You know, those guys those guys all went hard, um, played hard, and. Yeah, Hubbard is one of my favorite guys ever to watch ride a skateboard because it was just, <laughs> it was so, it was like one-upping Dwayne Peters or something where it was like, he just knew something horrible was going to happen and that was part of the beauty of watching him because he would just pop up like nothing and he was such a tough guy and he just loved skateboarding so much. Like, yeah, I mean, absolutely. and when I, you know, the first guys that I skated with when I first moved to Seattle, um, it was like there were some young kids. Uh, there was this guy Mark Lines that had a ramp, and uh, and then there was like Tom Pia and Matt Gallardo. And these guys that were all much younger kids, Ryan mm -hmm. Monahan, but guys that sort of ended up like you know doing some things, uh, making some noise in the contest world. And but Hubbard was really good friends with those guys. So I remember when he came out to build a bowl, we started talking about that stuff. And Hubbard was, I don't know, he was seven years younger than me or something or six years younger than me. <clears throat> but the whole thing shifted when I told him that I skated Mark Lyons ramp and like, 
you know, that I had skated these spots and, and it was kind of before his time. So he thought of those things as almost mythical. Yeah. And then we were, then we were just friends from that point on, like, you know, because we had this shared history and, and skateboarding is such a small, it's such a small community. Um, and when you lose, uh, three guys like that, um, I mean, that's a, that puts a big dent in like what a lot of us consider to be like real skateboarders, you know, like guys that like, it was, it was their life and they talked about it passionately and in a way that it's different than like the contest guys or whatever. They're, they're sort of the, they're sort of the heart and soul or at least the soul of skateboarding is, is guys like that. And, and Hubbard did so much for us out here. Like, you know, he, uh, some of the first skate parks that we built in Montana. Um, he was a guy getting the crew to come out and build for us. And uh, it really did start things for us <clears throat> out here. And so I'm, I'm forever grateful to, you know, if I would just call him and say like, Hey, yeah, okay. We'll be there in two weeks. You know, I was like, okay. I'm it like, didn't hey, take well. much. Yeah. He was coming. So. Yeah. So sick. Fuck. Yeah. It's heavy. You know, that reminds me, um, I I don't remember the year I suck at years, but early in my, I think it was like 88 maybe, I'm not exactly sure, but we went to uh, Mike Rankwit. He had a ramp outside of Seattle, maybe on a little island or something. And I think when we went there, it was right after you guys paid to relayer it for something. Yeah, so that would have been, that would have been like 91 maybe, I think. 91. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we we had done we had done a big show in Seattle, and we were like, um, oh no, no, no! What it was, we were we were putting on a big free show in Seattle, and the city canceled it. Uh, when they canceled it, I had start I had already started to go out to Montana, but I remember getting a call from Ed saying like, "Hey, do you mind if we like if the band donated some money to resheet this ramp out of Mike Rinkwood's place?" and I hadn't met Mike yet at that point, but I knew who he was because he was like a ripping snowboarder guy. And uh-huh. um, I didn't, I don't even think I knew, you know, what's crazy is I have a picture from this place called Grill Gardens that I took from the stage of uh, some people in the audience and Rinkwitz in the picture, which is, I mean, he must've been like 14 or something. It was probably like 1985 or 1986, but it was like Ryan Monahan and Matt Gallardo and some of those guys and Rinkwitz was Renko was like the little kid in that little yeah. group. Mark Lyons. Um, so, um, so I was like, hi- I was like hyped. And Ed goes, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go out. They're going to have a big party and we're going to, we're going to give them like a thousand bucks to resheat the ramp or whatever it was. So, um, so cool. Yeah. And then I got to, I got to know him a little bit just cause I was, my brother and I've uh, rented a frame for a few years, like 90, Three ninety four or ninety five, maybe up at Mount Baker, and so, you know, that was my first snowboarding years. So, like, for that to be the place where I was learning how to snowboard and to be around that scene and the chandelier scene, and kind of, you know, at some point during the win- every winter, like all the top pros, and they were all on that, you know, it was a crustier kind of punk rock uh, crew of sn- snowboarders at that time. It was a different. It wasn't uh it wasn't the Sean Whites and the yeah. you know, that sort of stuff. It was uh Jamie Lynn and Yeah, yeah. Um, Damian Sanders, uh, Cardiel. There Sean, was like more skating. Sean Palmer. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah all those dudes low. ripped skate. No, no, Salaznik, like, like yeah. all those dudes ripped skateboarding. Right. And I didn't see those guys skate till till a few years after that. And then, in fact, when I was finishing my bowl, um, I think it was Scott Smiley and Renquip. I knew I was three pool blocks short. They drove three pool blocks <laughs> from Seattle out here so we could we could we could actually finish the build on my my ball. Sick. Right. What what year was the bull your bull built? Uh 2002. 2002. So yeah. lots of people have come through. Oh, you got yeah, any yeah. do you That's... got any do you got any favorite moments or favorite dudes or like the most epic barbecue day where everything just worked a little better than than normal or um well i mean we had like a 10th anniversary kind of a loose 10th anniversary thing and i I remember i reached out to uh reached out to rick and buddy and i was already friends with like pineapple and um stropel and wally and a few of those guys and uh, it just it just started snowballing once people heard that people were coming out so then it was like you know steve bailey and uh, Grasso and Lance and uh, Olson and uh, Steve Schneer lived in Boise. Who he, he would he would come he would come up. Um, but I, I have like some amazing pictures where it's just like the dream. It's like my dream session. You know, there's maybe like Jay Adams and Shogo. Shake. If they would have been there, it would have been the the you know it would have been the all time right session. But um. Uh, yeah, and, you know, and Dwayne jumped in last minute. Like I remember, Alex Horn called me up. It was like, Dwayne wants to come. <laughs> and I was like, cool. Like, and he ended up getting on the wrong plane in Denver and landed in Great Falls and got arrested at the airport. And of course, that's it's just a classic, classic Dwayne story. Um, yeah. But he showed up and just ripped. And I just have the best pictures of him doing like layback rollouts on my bowl and like. We went up to St. Ignatius. There's a kind of gnarly kidney up there, and he's, you know, doing insane indie airs where his head's like two feet below his feet and and hitting his head super hard. And, you know, I, it's always like it's such a treat, you know, to be in my home state and to have any of these guys come through because as a kid, that was, you know, those guys in the mags, you know, like Pineapple and Stropel and Wally and Bowman and, Olsen and I mean those guys were like you know they were like my Jimmy Page and whatever so um so to get those guys to come out here Bowman's been out here two or three times like it's just the greatest it's like you know and we drag him through the national parks and camp and you know I take him back up to my hometown where we have a skate park and we have a we have a pig roast every year and oh cool um I think two years ago we built a park on the Rocky boy reservation and a bunch of those guys came up to that. So like, you know, Bowman and pineapple are helping like, you know, these little native kids ride a skateboard for the first time. And it's like, that's just like dream, (laughs) dream stuff for me. You know, I'm like, I'm like, these kids have no idea. Yeah. This is royalty. That's something that I wonder if the younger generation is in tune with. Cause I feel like, I mean, here you are, playing in Pearl Jam that's a huge deal but you still feel like a little kid around certain people and I feel like kids of this generation maybe they don't have that like the respect or just like 
the, that feel of like, oh my God, there's Mark Gonzalez. It's never going to be right, cool. Right. Like, I'm always going to geek out. You know? <laughs> well, yeah. I, and, and I think some of it is like every day a kid's looking at, you know, like, I, I'm just trying to think of an, ex- of an example. Uh, you know, if a kid loves Aishad Ware, who, who, who's also into my ball and like was one of my favorite, you know, like, that girl chocolate trip, like those guys showed up here and it was like seriously one of the funnest, you know, sessions I've ever seen here. Um, but you know, if a kid loves eyeshot wear, they follow on Instagram on their phone and they see what they're doing every day. And so the mystique is really isn't there. Like I, you know, once a month you get a magazine and you'd hope that your favorites, you'd hope Chris Stropel would be in the magazine. Oh, he wasn't in the magazine. Let's see, what the, what's going on? You yeah. know, Sometimes you had to wait two or three months to like see a picture of your favorite skateboarder. Um, That's true. So, so there was such a disconnect. <laughs> I mean, and I think that made, you know, I'm not really nervous around too many of those guys anymore, but I still, I, it's, it, I get such a kick out of it. I, I know how important they were to skateboarding and, right. and they're all such, such different characters and have such big personalities and, that was why they invented tricks and they were, you know, they were at the top of their game. And so I, it's, like I said, they're in, you know, in the pantheon of important people to me in the world, like they're up there with all the, you know, most important people, you know? All right. Okay. I got a few Tony farmer questions for you. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Before I get into it though, my question is, has he ever begged you to write a song about him? <laughs> Um, no, but I, I, th- I think maybe he's trying to get me in a room with Mor- Morrissey. <laughs> uh, guaranteed. Guaranteed. Speaking of characters, I mean, that guy's, that guy's one of the great skate characters for sure. Yeah. Amazing. Um, he said, we got to hear the band of horses hunger strike story. Oh, <laughs> this is, this is a good one. <clears throat> okay. So, so, um, Creighton. <laughs> Creighton Barrett, who's the drummer in Band of Horses, who's a fantastic skateboarder, lifelong skateboarder, amazing artist. I've gotten to be probably, I've gotten to be pretty good friends with him, probably even more so since the advent of Instagram. Um, but we toured, we toured together, but right before we toured together, there was a, I can't remember what magazine it was in, it might have been Skateboarder Magazine or something, but there was a, there was a monthly thing that was, uh, you know, if you come to our town, these are the things that a skateboarder should do. And it was all kind of insider stuff. And uh, Creighton got to do the Seattle one. And, uh, you know, he's saying, like, go to this bar and go to the Sunset Tavern. And there's a cool <laughs> bank at this spot. And there's a great rail at the school at, you know, uh-huh. Garfield and whatever. And, um, and then he goes, and if you get time, go to discovery park and reenact the temple of the dog hunger strike video, totally taking the piss out of us, completely taking the piss out of us. <laughs> um, I don't even know if Creighton knows this whole story. So this is fantastic. <laughs> I think I, I think the only person I told was Tony Farmer. Um, so uh, a few months later, um, somebody in our crew said, "Hey, I just saw Band of Horses. They were amazing. They'd be a perfect band to open up." I was like, "Yeah, they would be a perfect yeah." So so it worked out. 
they came out, we met them. They're like super, super, super nice to us. Like couldn't have been nicer. Um, in fact, uh, New York had just, New York city had just built the pier 62 and Crane and I went to the park and he's more of a street skater. So he, we, we were there together, but I was skating the ball and he was skating the, and it might've been, I might've been Madison square garden. I can't, I can't remember. We were talking about song. We, we've been talking for a couple of shows, songs that we could possibly do together and that Ben or any of the band, guys in the band come up and do. And uh, I was like, what about Hunger Strike? <laughs> Fully knowing that Creighton had just taken the piss out of the thing. And Ben goes, I love that song. And Creighton wasn't in the room, so Ben agreed to do this thing. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Madison Square Garden. I think Tony was there. Was Tony at the show? He, he might have been. Yeah, because he's been at a few Madison Square Garden shows. So the amazing thing, we're out there doing the song, and like Ben's like nailing the Chris Cornell part because he, he has a higher voice. With, uh, with your encouragement, we're going to attempt something.
just remember looking over at Creighton and just, and I don't even think he knew, but I was just looking at him going like, man, this is like the sweetest revenge ever. But I, I don't, I don't think we are, I'm not sure we ever talked about it. Huh. So he'll, he'll, maybe he'll find out. Yeah. This. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Some this or that Wrigley or Fenway. Oh man. See, if I answer this wrong, I could get in all sorts of trouble. <laughs> um, you know what? Because Ed grew up in Chicago, Wrigley is amazing. Um, and just, uh, you know, they've just treated us so well there. But Fenway sounds better. There's mm-hmm. something about that big green monster that's a w- the big wooden wall that it's just a better sounding. It's, it's smaller, too. It's a little bit more intimate. So I think because of that short left field. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I and, and I and I've there's something about Boston like I was really into the Boston hardcore scene. Um, SSD Control was like my favorite. There's a year where they were like my favorite band. Um, I love Jerry's Kids and Proletariat and Gangrene and all those DYS, all those Boston straight edge bands. Um, the Freeze, the FVs, amazing bands. Um, so I, I would probably go. I'd probably, I'd probably have to go with Fenway. Okay. Have I might, you, I might get, I might get kicked out of the band. Have you, have you seen baseball in either stadium? I have in both. Yeah. Well, yeah. What do you think for baseball? Uh, they're the two oldest stadiums. Yeah, that's it's I, tough, it's a right? to, That's a toss-up. I haven't been it's to Boston, but I fucking love Wrigley. Like I went there twice, and we had the. It was insane. It's just so cool yeah. in the middle of a neighborhood like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and even in the early days, like the, well, there's still, you know, Massa Square Garden and the Forum, or you can still play rock shows in those places. And it's two of the best, it's just two of the best places to play. That's his next question. Massa Square oh, wow. Garden or the Forum. <laughs> oh, crazy. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it has to be Massa Square Garden because New York is just the, one of the greatest places on the planet. And, I haven't been there in two years, so I'm kind of jonesing for it. Um, mm. And we've had a couple shows there that were like just crazy shows. Um, you know that that the the floor there is is uh, you know it's 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 a hanging floor, and so when the people start bouncing on that floor, the whole thing, the whole building starts shaking, and uh, and, and there's just so much, there's so much history in both those buildings, but in Madison Square Garden in particular, I mean, there's like, you know, presidential inaugurations and like Muhammad Ali and, you know, it's, it's like so much history. When you guys are playing those shows and Ed starts climbing up around and like <laughs> getting, like some of those ones are super, I just watched the documentary like a couple months ago and they yeah. were showing some i think copenhagen yeah. or something yeah. where it was just insanity is there any times where you're just like scared or are you not paying well, attention to it are you kind of in your own zone or well he's he doesn't do it anymore um which right, is good but, um yeah. but there but there was there was um there was a couple shows where it was like it it like i couldn't tell if he was being theatrical and acting like he was slipping but I remember there was a show in Del Mar that um, his mom was at the show, his brothers were at the show, and it was really high up. It was like a hundred plus feet, and there's this crazy curved I beam, and he acted like he was slipping off of it. Turns out he, it was like greasy 
when he got up there. Um, oh, damn. But I remember, I, I, I remember like at some point, like just saying like, look, man, like are, we already lost a singer. And like I said, if we lost another one, it might like kill me. Like, hmm. so take that for what it's worth. And, <laughs> um, yeah. And it, you know, it, 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 he still did stuff, but it never got, I mean, there, there was a couple times after that, like Jones beach and a few things that the whole Lollapalooza tour that we did, he was doing insane stuff on that tour. And it's, you know, partly cause we were playing 30 minutes at the beginning of, you know, the day and, hmm. you know, he was trying to get people into the, into the festival. So <laughs> that <Right>. worked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this one is probably, I don't know. To me, it's a very tough one and it's been going on forever. Tony brought it up one night. We're at the bar and he's like the greatest rock and roll band from the United States. Oh, yeah. And well, this I, has been an ongoing <clears throat> thing. Like, who is it? Why? Like all that. Do you have an opinion on this? And well, he, he wants to also he, add that you're definitely in the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, there was like a maybe a two year. I'm trying to think. I think maybe Mark Ryder, who uh, manages Metallica. I think there's there's maybe a couple other people on the text thread. Um, and you know, we would talk to each other for four months, and then you know, Tony would be like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and I'd be like, not a band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like we all have like our technicalities. So trying to. You know, and so it was all about what's the criteria. Right. It can't be you know, Jimi Hendrix. It has to be a band. Right. right. We, it has we to have be a that true one. band. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, like, for me, it was, I mean, Cheap Trick and Aerosmith were always, I'm like, those two bands have, like, for me are, you know, two of the top four or five, probably, um, just because those bands were so important to me as a kid. I mean, that, I mean, I, you know, I was... I listened to all those records and I've skated to all those records. And like, it's, you know, when I hear heaven tonight, it's su summer of 1979 and it's one of the eight tracks under my ramp. And it's, it just takes on this whole.
so one of the criteria was like you can't have sullied your like you know your good period like whatever your good period was if there's a period that you decided to be like hair metal or just some yeah. cheap trick kind of got into that a little bit and then Aerosmith also was a little bit guilty of that like they they both went sort of went and we were like is that enough to like uh-huh. take them out of the out of the conversation but <clears throat> I, I would probably I would probably say Cheap Trick is my favorite American band sick okay because they're amazing now like I saw them last summer and they were, it was like they just Still. crushed it like oh, yeah Robin Zander was like singing like crazy and uh-huh. um, so Right. What's yours? What's your what's your that see, I don't know. I mean we had the discussion and so it the all the shit is like depending on okay, well Aerosmith won the most or they have the most albums. So I don't know, Tony's kind of broken it down that way, but to me it was like for me the most impact single handedly, I think, was Appetite for Destruction. Like Guns N' Roses, when that album came out, fucked me up. And it still fucks me up when I put it on. Like, I love that album. So I have to put Guns N' Roses in that thing, but obviously they don't match up with like Aerosmith and all these bands that have like 20 plus albums. I don't know. It's a really hard one. I like the punk rock one better. But the question yeah, I have is, yeah. is Devo punk? Because Devo is... I think they were. I yeah. think they were. So is Devo I, I, the winner? It's like... I mean, Devo might have made, you know... It's like, I remember being in college and a pickup truck driving by and saying, like, fuck you, Devo. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't look like, look like Devo. Yeah. But Devo took on, on this whole thing. Like, like, the weirdo person who obviously listened to punk rock music, they were Devo to the mm-hmm. rest of the world. Right. So it might have been more influential. And Devo holds up so strong to this day. Those yeah. first four records are like insane. insane. They're so right. good. Like I can listen to those records over and over and over. This came up um, when I think Bad Brains got uh, sort of pre-nominated for the Rock and Hall of Fame. And I was like, my argument was like Bad Brains – the first time I saw Bad Brains, it was one of the five best shows I've ever seen in my life. Like, it was like, I'd never seen anybody play that precise, that fast, with that much, that much energy. Like, there was just, like, palpable energy. You could see it in the room, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it was... Um, but they're not more influ- influential than Black Flag or the Dead Kennedys, who, both those bands... Black Flag, like created the alternative uh touring and record label mechanism like they they created that like themselves sst did that like and so to me like that's the obvious one it's like how is that band you know it's like that band is so important to anybody who started playing music in the 80s and even in the 90s and even still to some degree like right you know yeah I mean, when we were skating and there was soundtracks playing, it was always Black Flag, Misfits, Minor Threat. Like, those bands were just heavy rotation. Uh, Bad Brains, to me, is the one that 99 out of 100 are going to say are an influence to them. And Black Flag will get more like, 
Well, are we pre-Rollins or during Rollins? You know, right. there there's right. these right. Right. these sections, like you know, um, and that's kind of the same thing with the rock and roll one. I'm kind of like, it's a smaller sample size, but the impact was huge for like Bad Brains. Um, uh, yeah. Brian Brandon said uh, DOA was really huge for them. Yeah, and they so. and DOA was and you know DOA was touring so much, like you know they were. And I think they all shared, you know, like you, you hear those guys talk about the early days, how DOA would come through and say like, man, we just played a great show in Lincoln, Nebraska. You got, here's a phone number. You know, that was how you got the information in those days. Um, right. It's just purely by going out and doing it. And if somebody treated you well, then you, the word of mouth, um, you know, kept it going. And JFA, like in those early days, man, they, I mean, JFA toured the whole country two or three times. Right. You know, at that time, and and you know, they were tour dogs. You know, fuck. like, yep, that's amazing. so sick. Well, fuck, uh, you got a um, you're you're just releasing a solo project, is that right? A new one? Um, well, I just put out a little five song EP, a little five song seven inch um, that I recorded uh, in March at the beginning of the pandemic stuff, um, and it was you know it was just one of those things where. You know, for like a week, my wife and I were just sitting around complaining and I was like, okay, this is, this is going to last a while. So like, this can't be our reality. Like we need to come up with some projects. So I was like, I'm going to go in and write a song every day, which I'd never done in my, you know, I'd never done in my life. Um, and so I, for probably six weeks, I went in and probably wrote five songs a week for six weeks. I think I, I think at the end of a couple months, I had about 40 songs of which of half of were pretty shitty. Um, you got a little studio at the house. Yeah. Yeah. That I've had here forever for, you know, it's like, it's a really great studio for like 1996. It's uh, <laughs> like digital, digital tape. And, uh, uh -huh. but I have a couple of good mics and I, and I know how to use everything and I can play a little bit of drums and, right. um, and it's it's not Pro Tools, so it's like it's you have to sort of do a performance. You you can't do a lot of like editing and cutting, splicing. Yeah, in oh. fact, you can't do any. Uh -huh. um, so that part was good, um, and so that made me want to record like shorter songs because then there's uh, and then I just got into this the kind of the spirit of 1982 of like the first songs that I wrote and um, whatever I was thinking of there was no topic that was too precious or too stupid to not try to write a song about it. And it was just the best, you know, pretty much March, April, May, that's all I did. Um, huh. And uh, so I, I took the kind of the first, I think, I think five of the first 10 songs I, I put in this little EP and two of the songs are sort of gothy piano songs. And then three of the songs are just like straight up hardcore, like one minute.
super fun and I've sort of kept it going. So it's, it's like, in some ways it's like almost like the most creative time musically that I've ever had. And, uh, totally. So it's, I, I think that's all we can do in this time is just like, <laughs> yeah, we just like, just like get through it, you know? And, uh, hopefully in a year and a half, like, there's still some restaurants around and some small businesses and right. I mean, who the fuck knows gonna, what's going to happen here in this next year, man. It's like so scary, but you guys were like either on a tour or about to go on tour, right? As this broke, right? Like you released yeah. uh, a gig, giga gigaton yeah. came out like, so how's that been received? Has that been kind of weird? Yeah, I mean, we we had just spent uh, two, you know, it was probably the most rehearsing we'd ever done for a tour. Like, we spent about two weeks in Seattle um, uh, kind of rehearsing. We did a week by ourselves and a week with, like, a good chunk of our crew. And then part of our crew was headed to Albany where their, our uh, lighting director was out there with, like, the new lights and, like, programming stuff and... Um, trucks had left with our gear and then we and then all of a sudden uh it blew up in seattle and a bunch of people had died in that nursing home and we were having just we had three or four days of heavy conversations and the thing that you know nailed it for me was we heard that there was people from 12 countries coming to the first show in toronto and that just seemed like a nightmare it just seemed like because nobody really knew no you know it's like we weren't getting any real solid information from the government and we just knew that in Seattle like a bunch of people were dying and it was this virus that we didn't know that much about and it was spread through the air and so they were like you know we talked to somebody from the CDC and they were saying like yeah if you have a bunch of people in the room singing that's kind of how it's going to spread pretty easily that way and then we thought there's people from 12 12 countries coming to this show (laughs) And there are they going to take it back? And is this show going to like, you know, be the start of like some horrible spread? Um, Yeah, they said Sturgis, they said, was like that. There was like 250,000 people went elsewhere after and it just spread it. Yeah, Yeah, 250,000 people. That's just that's like but that I mean, that that governor in South Dakota is just like she might be one of the (laughs) stupidest people in the world. But, But yeah, so we, you know, in some ways we've. I think we were the first band to cancel. Hmm. I think they had canceled Coachella because Coachella was like three weeks away. And a couple of days later, we were just, we were sitting around going like, we can't, you know, even though we were like going to lose like so much money and like, yeah. we didn't, you know, it's like we'd, we'd signed, you know, contracts with a bunch of our crew. And so we, you know, we're, we were like, well, we'll, I mean, I think at that point we thought, yeah, we'll get through this in six to 12 months and we'll, we can get back at it and you know now it's looking like next year's not looking great yeah so have you seen any of these uh drive-in theater style i think metallica maybe just did one yeah i um i'm good friends with this guy john wicks in town um who he plays he plays drums in a band called Fits and the Tantrums, who are kind of a pop band. Um, but we've we made a bunch of music together. But he just went and did three of them in Southern California, and I think it was like half awesome. I think it was awesome just for him to get together with his band and sort of like play. And he said the crowds were good, but he said like 
you just have this giant cloud over you the whole time. Everybody's, you know, everybody's trying to stay apart. And, yeah. you know, it's all these shows were in, in L.A. So, you know, a couple, three weeks ago, there were still quite a few cases uh, around L.A. And so everybody was kind of walking on eggshells. And, yeah, I think we're just going to wait until we can just go back to normal and, you know, have, you know, 20,000 people on big PA and <laughs> Is that, yeah, hopefully that's feel, feel, feel good about it. They were talking about like sports, like baseball, like let's say baseball starts up in a couple of weeks. They open up. Are you down? <laughs> like, right. you, like they said yeah. it's cool. <laughs> You're like, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, what, what do they say that it's consumer confidence, you know, and I don't think consumer confidence is high in any of that stuff mm. right now. Like no matter how, de- divisive things are in our country and whatever it's you know whatever 50 50 with all the other stuff but when it comes right down to it i think it's like 75 percent of the people don't want anything to do with any of that shit you know they're mm-hmm. like no nah, we're gonna wait we're gonna wait till there's a vaccine and yeah you know until the numbers are down and i mean for me it's like i would at least wait until like everybody's cool wearing a mask and doing some <laughs> yeah you know doing what they're doing in the rest of the world you know yeah, 100%. It's like, it's the craziest shit. I, I just don't even understand the dilemma. It seems so straightforward and like, okay, if there's a 2% chance that your mom's going to die, do you want to take that 2% chance? Why don't you just put a fucking mask on? Is it that hard? That's kind of yeah. how we've been looking at But uh, everybody's just yeah. so divisive right now. It's crazy. Uh, we end it with um, a song usually. Uh, so you could pick any song to fucking play as we take it out of here. But I did want to talk about the MPS. Like, is that, are yeah. you guys building parks? Um, probably not, right? Yeah, no, we are. We uh, we uh, finished one earlier in the summer with Evergreen uh, in Lincoln, Montana. Oh. Which is about halfway halfway between here and Great Falls, Big Sandy. Um, like a beautiful spot. And then they're working on a park in Red Lodge right now um, who, uh, you know, they've had they've had kind of a crappy uh, slab ramp skate park there for 10 or 15 years or maybe even longer. Uh-huh. Um, and then we're um, we were supposed to build a park in Superior, which is west of here a little bit. But um, <clears throat> they want to wait till next year because they have a couple grants that they're still trying to get. So we're building a little park up in Shelby, which is um I think I mentioned it earlier, it's like halfway between Thunder Park on the Blackfeet Reservation and like Haver and Big Sandy. And there's a bunch of parks over kind of in that zone. So it's, um, you know, we, we sort of look at a map every year and just go like, okay, where, where can we kind of put pressure on, you know, some of these communities and, and uh, see if, you know, we can get, and, you know, usually you end up finding out like, oh yeah, there's like three kids that, skateboard here they're always at the there's a little stair set at the school or you know right and then that and that's kind of all it takes like if there's three or four kids in town that are like down and then when you're building the park if you get them sort of involved in the process and you tell them like hey this is your park you got to take care of it Mm. um those are the those are the great uh examples when you know those kids, you know, if somebody spray paints, they're telling on those kids and they're making those, they're, you know, right. telling the cops and the cops make them go, the kids that spray paint and go back and clean it up. And, 
you know, or if, if somebody's messing up and it's, they have their hard work into it, then they have, you know, there's some ownership there. And, um, you know, I think, you know, probably half to two thirds of the parks in the state that we built, um, kind of have that going on. Just have these cool little skate, you know, crews, you know, that right. are taking care of the park. So do you got a favorite one? You know, um, we built the park in a place called Lewistown. That's, it's kind of the very center of the state. Um, it's pretty isolated. Um, but it used to be like kind of a happening town. There was a gold mine there for a hundred years and it was about 10,000 people that used to live there. And I think now it's down to about 5,000 people because the mine closed. Uh, but there's a, there was a guy, Jay Stevens there who was like gung ho to build a park. And he just like rallied the whole community and rallied a bunch of kids and they raised some money. And I said, I'll match whatever you, raise and they ended up raising more than I really could afford <laughs> but I matched it because I just told them I would and so we built this you know Evergreen built this incredible park there it's, we ended up building a reverse replica of my ball so there's like a real uh, you know like a real skate uh, bowl there and then there's just like a flow section that's giant and huge and then there's like a ring of uh, street stuff around the you know, kind of the outside edge of it. And it's, it just kind of has it all, you know, it just kind of has, okay. Kind of, yeah. kind of has all the, has all the elements and it's, I think it's 17,000 square feet. So it's kind of a bigger, one of the bigger parks in the state. And, but there's, you know, it's, you know, it's like, as you know, like skate spots or parks or whatever, like it's the funnest one is usually the new one that you've only skated once or twice. And, you yeah. know, you just, you know, there's some, part of it that just speaks to you then that ends up being your favorite park so um, that one that looks oh. like the the moon it's like a bunch yeah, of fucking that one looks so fun yeah there's lewistown has a section like that and then thunder park and the blackfeet res has a big section of uh, hamilton has uh -huh. a huge section like that um um but then we're also doing a bunch of smaller parks that are like 6,000, 7,000 square feet in these small towns. Like Shelby will probably be about that big. And, okay. Um, and it's, you know, I think per capita, we definitely have, you know, more good concrete than anywhere in, in the country, I'm pretty sure. Um, there's not even a million people here, and we have, you know, 30 pretty good skate parks. So, um, so come on out. Up. You got to come out. Yeah. Get farmer. Yeah, we're gonna we got farmer Ox and Bryce is the dream team right now. Yeah, they they were <laughs> coming last year and then something happened with Ox. Yeah, um, so I'm not sure what happened. Bryce is Bryce comes out every year, so he's he's a really good crew of guys in uh, in Oregon, like Rich and Mark Conahan, and those guys are uh, they're they're always going to come out. So Casey, my buddy Adam, who lives in Portland. Um, and that's the bummer about this year is I haven't seen any of those guys. I've seen, you know, it's like I do these small sessions. Like I'll call one guy and say like, Hey, you want to go skate at like nine in the morning when nobody's there? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's kind of what we've been doing. I, I get up early now. Like I'm just, I go to bed early and I get up super early, get coffee. And then I'm like ready to go at like seven or some sauce. So yeah. If I'm going to skate, I'll skate before anyone comes out. It's easier. Yeah. San Francisco's crazy right now. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the photos, but it's just, it's, yeah. it's really, well, it's, it's making you want to just stay inside. 
Yeah. And, and then you don't want to do that because you're like, wait, that's what they want. But like, you kind of need yeah. to. Well, you guys have done actually a pretty good job with the virus. Like, you, you know, your numbers have been pretty yeah. down, especially, you know, compared to LA or something. Um, yeah. Which I, which surprised me because, because you guys are living on top of each other there, you know? Yeah, and the it's homeless like Manhattan. are everywhere. So, yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. It's insane. We got to get through. We just got to get through this next year, man. Like everybody's just got to like, like hold on and. Yeah, we'll do it's it. Like, you know, and hopefully there's we get good news in November and we right. get some help. That's crucial. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a big one. For sure, everybody vote, please. Um, yes. Yeah, you, you got a you got a jam we should throw on to to take it to the bridge. Uh, let's see. I'm gonna go Devo Blockhead. Okay, sick. Dude. Since we were talking Devo, I think Devo means skateboarding to me as much as any band. So yeah, I love that. Okay, um, thanks so much, dude. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. And thanks, uh, Smitty. It's awesome. I think I talked to you for forever, but I could talk to you forever <laughs> more. Like we, I was skipping through some stuff because I knew I wanted to get to some other stuff, but I really. Yeah. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you, man. Keep it going, you know. Like Yeah. Like it's it's good to get introduced to this, you know, podcast and stuff just to stay connected to everybody and you know, everybody's sort of dealing with it in a different way, so it's like it's you you know, I feel like I pick up uh healthy you know, ways to navigate all this, you know, every right. time I listen to people talk, so cool. Keep sharing, keep up the good work. Hell yeah. Awesome.
Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Schmidt. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. When you subscribe, you'll get notifications every Tuesday of new episodes the minute they become available. Also, please leave reviews and a five-star rating. It's the best way to help the show grow. All of the episodes will always remain free, but if you would like to help support the show, you can do so at TalkingSchmidt.com, where you can pick up some merchandise like t-shirts, beanies, hats, and stickers. The website has an entire archive of all of the episodes, with extra photos and videos. Email us with any suggestions, comments, or ways that the show may have improved your life at TalkingSchmidt at gmail.com. All interviews are conducted, edited, and produced by Schmitty. The intro music is Mary's Cross by the band Nature. A very special shout-out goes to the executive director, Cheryl Camisa. This is Talking Schmidt, where the Rolodex is deep, but the conversation is deeper.